It's interesting this uh, kind of feud between uh, the traditional rapper and the, and the mumble uh, rapper situation. Yeah, that's absolutely hilarious to me. The way all these, uh, well, a lot of old heads of, of hip hop are so indelibly connected to this idea that to be worthwhile hip hop, you have to have, first of all, a valid message. And second of all, the technique, the rapping skills, like uh, the ability to rap fast. Like these things, which used to be a much larger part of hip hop culture, mm. are not really seen as, as valuable at all these days in like uh, young hip hop artists. I feel, feel like rap has kind of evolved. I mean, because the style of lyricism that was very important in the 90s and early aughts, it's evolved beyond that. It's become something different. Yeah, and, and that was like that was the time and the era, right? You, before that, you had the '80s, which was much more irreverent um, yeah. in terms of like theme and stuff. It was usually just about partying, yeah, or some weird storytelling, right? It took itself a lot less seriously, and that is in large part how it is now. Although I, I wouldn't say trap artists now don't take themselves seriously. I think they do, but they have a much more focus on just vibing. Like the waviness of the <laughs> the sounds and and uh, having like the beat and shit. They also seem like disillusioned youth. Like where the old guard had much more of a like a, a protest vibe. I mean, of course, bling and, and money and all that sort of stuff. But there was like fuck the police kind of thing. But you have eras there too, right? Mm. You have the the golden age of hip hop, mm. right? Uh, where you had a lot of the fuck the police and the NWA and you know. Mob Deep, and you had Public Enemy, maybe uh, slightly before that, and mm. you had artists like Biggie Smalls, and you know all these huge hip hop acts, and then you had the Bling era, which was seen as a lot more empty in terms of content, like you just sang about or rapped about, you know, jewelry and, and cars, yeah, being rich, yeah. A lot of hip hop now is essentially rapping about the same stuff, but it's a lot more irreverent and a lot more. There's a punk aesthetic to it, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah where you don't give a shit about what came previously. But also like your expectations of the future are, they're just, they're not relevant. You're just, you're doing what you do now to have fun. And you know, the future's fucked anyway, so. Yeah, but a lot of it isn't really about having fun either. Mm -hmm. Like it's about partying a lot of the time, but. Well, that's what I meant, I guess. But at (laughs) the same time, it's sort of partying in the face of depression and Mm -hmm. drug abuse and just being emotionally a wreck. Yeah, there's a despair in it. Yeah, of course, of course there's, so many subgenres yeah. and so many artists that are doing quite different things. But I think as a like a generalization, you you could say that about a lot of the trap today. Mm. But I, I I find the sort of idea of of dismissing an entire genre because you you don't think it's fast and technical enough mm. on the rapping side, and you have this idea that all rap music has to rap about something important, like. There are so many aspects to music, like there's tonality, there's melody, there's polyphony, there's There's mood, there's mood, like there's rhythm, there's Mm. so many things that you can take into account. And to say that, actually, there was this uh, quote about from Ben Shapiro. Oh, yeah. That it isn't music without melody or whatever. He was, he was dismissing, he was dismissing hip hop. He is a musical retard, but he often makes these sort of bombastic and idiotic claims uh, regarding especially like hip hop and stuff like that. He's what, absolutely not curious at all about anything really. No, so he's just a smart little douchebag that 
brags about listening to Mozart. He literally did that. Like, I'm listening to Mozart today. Like, okay, that's great for you. It's like this sort of... Uh, yeah, most people don't need to brag about that stuff. No, it's it's a very incredibly like childish way of gaining like uh, some sort of perceived idea of like, being an intelligent person because you listen to some classical music. It's so childish. Mm. And that idea is sort of pervasive among, like I said, a lot of the old heads of hip hop, mm. but not all by any means. No, no. Um, but it's but just it, sort of funny to me. I mean, that it makes me think about process of getting old. You know, a lot of people, not all of course, but a lot of people, the older they get, they kind of, they have their thing, they're kind of used to their thing and they don't really like change. And when things change, they get, you know, defensive and they get annoyed and they look at like youth culture and they look at... The place that they usually held now have other people. They're doing things differently. They have other values. And there's yeah. um passive aggressive or even directly aggressive like tone towards uh, change. Yeah, and it's it's emotional and it's sort of based on the sort of feelings of oh, the good old days and yeah. things were better in the past. And fear uh, of being replaced probably. Yeah, and also this sort of uh, idea that music was better in the past mm. is so pervasive, especially if you like look at YouTube comments and stuff. Mm. Who's listening to this in uh, current year? And then uh, it's better than this modern shit they call mm. uh, rap. I call it crap. Mm. That's, <laughs> or that's some a, inane that's comment. a cool yeah. comment. Yeah, that's a cool comment. I always respect people who make that comment. Yeah, um, yeah. People say music was better in the past, but they forget how much shit there was in the past, like yeah. musically, because we haven't like brought that along. People don't listen to it anymore yeah. because it was it's fucking it out. shit. Yeah. But if you look at what was topping the charts back in the seventies, for instance, ninety percent of it was bullshit, just like it is today. It's yeah. not a valid criticism of music today. If anything, music has become way more diverse because of the ability of doing home recordings and shit, and not having to go through a label. I mean, there's always a lot of interesting things. You just need to look. Right. It's not that it's, difficult. It's just a testament to a lack of curiosity on your part if you're not willing to explore what different kinds of music exist today. Like, you can find literally anything. I'm not sure if it's a, a growing trend, but it's been a trend for a long while now in a lot of conservative circles that mm. you sort of have, have to guard these bastions of old good culture when it comes to music. Like the iconic rock acts of Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and shit. Like that was the good music back mm. in the day when people actually knew how to play music. Mm. It's just so, so regressive. Yeah. I mean, who gives a shit? Yeah. Who gives a shit, right? Like uh, I get incredibly bored listening to the same music all the time. So I, I try to find new music all the time. And, yeah. and that's not everyone is like that. I, a lot of people like listening to the same stuff over and over. Well, and I mean, music is interesting in the sense that a lot of people... It's my impression, at least, they, they kind of forge their personalities towards certain types of music. And, you know, unlike, I mean, to, to some extent, you find it in, in other types of art as well. But the clothes you wear and the style and all that sort of stuff, it's so directly connected to the type of music. And it's a kind of like a tribal signal. You're saying that this is me and this represents me and I'm it. Yeah, it's definitely akin to like things like ethnicity or whatever. Mm. It's these signals we use to sort of represent who we mm. are. And everybody does it to some extent. Mm. But you don't see really a lot of people. Well, it's not that common to wear like shirts with your favorite movie on. It's more common to mm. wear a, an artist or a band or yeah. stuff like yeah. that, even though both are common. You have the movie stuff, but it's not It's not like a genre as much as like, metal head or uh, like a hip-hop style those are so distinctly connected to the music like yeah but they are their own subcultures in yeah. a way that you can say like 
I'm a I'm a horror fan. Like, yeah, you can say that, but a lot of people are horror fans. Yeah, but uh, like, I mean, okay. So if you had some walk around in a cowboy costume, like a western thing, yeah. that would look really weird. That w- yeah, would like be surprising. I'm, I'm in the western subgenre. Like, yeah. there are people in that genre. Yeah, and people, you know, from those places that, that there, there are people in all sorts of genres, but yeah. it's not very common. It's mm-hmm. often really like we are like. Like you have in Japan this sort of weird obsession. Like there's a small subgroup of people who are super into like the greaser look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they build their entire lives around that sort of identity. But it's not really connected to the greaser subculture in the United States. It's this sort of caricature of it. Yeah, it's an adapted form. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's kind of awesome yeah. the way the sort of mixing of cultures mm. uh, create this sort of weird mutant of uh, a subculture. Yeah. It's, in Japan is so interesting as well because, you know, a lot of the time we experience like art that we've taken from another context, another country or something, and then made into like a Western style. But they kind of subvert that. They take our stuff and they interpret it and uh, recontextualize it. And it's always Internalize it really because we talked about, I think, like Japanese, like uh, jazz and, and yeah. uh, their way of, of adapting musical styles is really interesting because oftentimes they just don't have the context behind those mm. styles. So mm. they will adapt like musical theory. They don't really have the the cultural context and maybe sometimes baggage that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it can sound a bit sterile because of that, I think. It depends. There's a lot of weird and awesome Japanese music too, mm. of course. Mm. But like if you listen to some of the, the jazz stuff, for instance, and the classical stuff coming from Japan, Oftentimes it can feel a bit sterile simply because it's technically brilliant, but doesn't really have the, the whole cultural context of it. I haven't actually listened to any Japanese jazz. Is there anything that you'd recommend? Not off the top of my head. The stuff I've listened to is, is uh, technically good and musically quite f- forgettable. Often like uh, covers of, you know, the traditional, you know, real book, typical jazz uh, standards. You know? mm. But of course, I'm, I'm sure there's great experimental jazz musicians from Japan too. That's mm. not what I'm saying. But there is this uh, sort of, I mean, it's an island nation, right? So it doesn't, it, it culturally has been sort of insulated for so long that there's been this real cultural insularism as well. We've both been to Japan, right? No, but I have a family member who was there. Yeah. But you've been to Japan, what's your... Yeah, I've been there twice, uh, once in connection with an animation film festival, and then once just on a trip, just a week in, in Tokyo. Nice. And just walking around, trying to get to know the place and watching some kabuki theater, puppet theater, and uh, just, you know, exploring Akebara and these things, places you've heard of and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just eating some Japanese food. I find it fascinating the way people are fascinated with Japan. Oftentimes, mm. it's such a, like an obsession for some people, yeah. like uh, especially the otaku people who are mm. like hyper into anime and manga mm. and that mm. stuff. And I find it often extremely off-putting. Because there's this fetishization of an entire culture just based on watching cartoons, Mm. uh, often very good cartoons, often pretty bad cartoons. Mm. But basically just taking a nation's cultural output and fetishizing it and believing that the nation is like it's depicted in like run-of-the-men animes, for instance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of strange. It would be like coming to America and... uh, expecting everything to be like it is in yeah. like uh, cop shows or whatever. But people do that to an extent as well, not cosplaying America necessarily, in the way like otaku culture has. Some, these, some, uh, some are, like the Greasers we talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But I mean, people fetishize or idolize other cultures 
Uh, they do, and often it's it's off-putting to me anyway because it sort of neglects the actual identities mm. and cultures involved and simplifies them and makes them into a sort of more commodity or a sort of a pin-up version of what it actually mm. is. Mm. Like you have it with a lot of cultures, like yeah. people idolize India, for instance. Mm. We talked about this a bit earlier, yeah. where people will like view India as this mystical place to like find healing and find spiritual awakening mm. and uh, like everything from the Beatles traveling there to uh, Siddhartha uh, or uh, movies like uh, Slumdog Millionaire mm. or like um, books like The Alchemist or uh, yeah. like all this sort of Shantaram, that book, for instance, mm. where it's basically white people fetishizing a nation's cultural output or national identity. Yeah. In a way, that's really off-putting to me. Yeah, and often there's, there's sentimentalism to the core. There's a sentimentalism a to it. There's orientalism, mm. there's exoticism, there's kitsch, definitely. And it's a very westernized way of romanticizing the East. Yeah, in some ways it's the opposite of cultural curiosity because you're not really going there to explore what is this actually. You're kind of projecting your ideas about what it is. And oftentimes just what it can do for me. Yeah. You know, you're traveling to Japan, for instance, mm-hmm. to meet uh, a beautiful Japanese anime babe, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that will cook and clean for you because that's how their culture is in your opinion. Or mm-hmm. you're traveling to India because there you can find what the, this nation has delivered to me spiritually mm-hmm. or culturally. Mm-hmm. And it's a really egocentrical way of uh, viewing traveling and viewing mm-hmm. other cultures. That's uh, disgusting, in my opinion. I had, uh, no, I had a really good time in Japan. And one of the best experiences uh, or most touching experience uh, Hiroshima the um, museum dedicated to the um, it's called the Peace Museum I think dedicated to the bombing of Hiroshima I've been to a fair few museums but I never like really got emotionally touched or you know put out the way I mean the situation you know of that atomic bomb is absolutely terrible but it's a very well put together museum it has like a narrative to it the way it's introduced and shows off the situations extremely effectively. It's a proper emotional journey going uh, there. They have a few exhibits that are quite striking. Among others, they have um, like a miniature of the traditional Hiroshima as it was. Right. And a miniature of Hiroshima after it's being bombed so you can see very clearly. And it's filled with stories about Hiroshima as a town building itself up, being like a cultural place. Whether or not they wanted to, they were kind of militarized in preparation for the war and just like civilians forced into these roles and the culture changing and then being utterly obliterated. It's incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, You know, Kyoto was supposed to be bombed too. That would have been uh, so bad. Yeah, but apparently the general making the decision, I'm just going off what I remember, I'm I'm not going to bother factoring this, but mm. <laughs> apparently he uh, he had studied there as a young man. Oh, and yeah. He liked the city, so so they didn't bomb it. It's uh, random ass experiences that mm. change uh, history. Well, a bit of empathy, you know, just uh, knowing the place it means a lot. That's how it is. Like if you have empathy for people, it's incredibly difficult to destroy them. Yeah, which is why a lot of, of course, army techniques and stuff are based on not making your soldiers feel empathy for the enemy. Yeah, reducing it. So much propaganda and stuff. Like you see how the Nazis would use propaganda in a way just to dehumanize their enemies because mm. most people are empathetic beings. 
Well, dehumanization language I find very interesting. A lot of the time, it's about recategorizing people as animal or insects and vermin, removing their personhood and uh, their similarity to you. And you know, also in like gender-based stuff, there's a lot of really, you know. Myself, I'm really concerned about the welfare of animals as well. So it has a double-sided element to it that I found really disturbing how you can take a person, you can call it a pig, and then devalue it so that you can, say, slaughter the person because the pig is worth less. When uh, a pig is a sentient being, of course. Yeah, and using like language in this way to devalue and destroy other forms of life I found it really sad and quite, you know, it's very interesting, but quite disturbing. It's disturbing and it's problematic. Like, um, I mean, it's difficult to, like, if you empathize with animals, for instance, it becomes incredibly difficult to eat meat, for instance. Mm. And I find it actually problematic to eat pork, not because of any religious uh, superstitions, but because I empathize with them as animals. Mm. So I I just try to <laughs> try to not empathize. I try to not think about it when I eat meat because... Mm. I'm just uh, morally lazy at that point, and I just want to eat meat, right? One of my favorite books is called uh, Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol J. Adams. And um, it's a really good book. It looks at feminism and meat eating and how these things cross them in different ways. One of the things she talks about is uh, something she calls the absent referent. And in the context of, of meat, like the absent referent is the person that's no longer a person, it's just a slab of food. And when you take away the personhood, you can do anything with it. I mean, you can do that in war as well. It's quite disturbing that this is a, a being that's not in control. The personhood has been taken away from it and it's uh, been created into something else, created into a product that's no longer allowed to make any decisions. I mean, realistically, they're not really allowed to make many decisions in their life anyway, but you're kind of repackaged into an object. I thought that was very interesting. Um, well, I mean, that is sort of the necessary transactional situation you need to be able to to do what you do in that situation, right? I think I find personhood and agency such interesting concepts, mm. and they've been so malleable throughout mm. history. Oh. Like, if you go back to, say, the Neolithic era... You have, through archaeological finds and stuff, and a lot of the evidence we have is that they view personhood, they, well, us, we mm. did. Mm. Personhood was a quite different thing back then. Also through like the Iron Age and, and the Roman period. How was it defined? Well, different in a lot of different cultures, but like a thing that would be different, like from say how we view personhood mm. is that objects could have personhood. Yeah. And so you would often find objects uh, definated in uh, in bogs and stuff and often treated the same way mm. as a person mm. would. You'd have a burial for a sword, for instance. Mm, yes, uh, and also, for instance, they would be linked with the person who owned them during their lifetime. Mm. So they would be put in the, the person's grave because it would be disrespectful to use that object like that was so linked to that person. Mm. So, mm. so you had a sort of... Uh, a sort of reverence. A reverence and respect for inanimate objects. Mm. But of course, they weren't inanimate objects to them. They were mm. agents mm. and they were they had personhood. Yeah, and sometimes names. Even. Yeah, and, and the same way with animals. So in a lot of ways, in the past, you had a sort of a wide variety of personhood and agency than you do now. And of course, you had gods and spirits mm. and all these sorts of things. Like in ancient Rome, you would have 
a God for every like intersection. Mm. You'd have a, a little altar in almost every place. Like you'd have a little altar in the latrines mm. and you would have a deity for that. Yeah. And you would pay your respects constantly mm. to the world around you in a way that you really don't do anymore. Mm. In a way that I think has sort of stumped us morally in a way. It's interesting because you also have parallels like something like a garden gnome, which is kind of like a, a thing that you have in your garden that watches over and takes care of it. You have these spirits or like uh, folklore creatures that kind of deity-like. Yeah, the garden gnome is sort of a, now it's become this characterized version of this this concept that was very prevalent in mm. the past. And almost all cultures have this sort of helpful spirits or vengeful spirits, depending on how you treat them. But especially in like Scandinavian folklore, you mm. had Huldefolke. That you had to sort of make sure you treated right because mm. otherwise they would fuck your crops up, make your animals sick, etc. So you had like, for instance, you couldn't throw washing water out the window. You'd upset the folk. Oh, really? So it was just little things like that, that sort of treated your surroundings mm. with respect because the surroundings were intrinsically linked to spirits and deities. And you had this sort of a sense of personhood all around you that is just completely gone mm. these days. Yeah. Animals don't have personhood anymore, mm. right? Unless they're pets. I mean, there are elements to it, like in terms of property, uh, like boats have names and maybe like a motorcycle or like a car. I mean, you do kind of place some of that stuff. I think that's part of human psychology. Yeah, right. But that, like, that's the thing. It's, it's really part of our human psyche. Yeah. It's natural for us to do mm. these things. But it's been more and more like transactionalized into... Like we give it to, yeah, like you, you name your boat, right? Mm. But you don't really think of it as a person. It does have this sort of vague sense of person, mm. like somebody who loves their car mm. will name their car and really like feel emotionally attached to it. But maybe not in the same way that you previously would have done to mm. like, say, an ancient tree or whatever. Mm. Yeah, and if you think about like old seafarer language, they'll also talk about the boat as a she and more as a person in a sense. Yeah, and the sea was also had personhood yeah, yeah. and was controlled by various forces. Mm. So you had to be respectful, right, mm. to the gods of the sea. Now you really don't have to be respectful. But, but it's because yeah. our fear of the wilderness and our mm. fear of nature, as discussed in the Antichrist mm. the episode we just recorded, has vanished in large part. Like huge chunks of mystery has been filled in with quote-unquote knowledge. Of course, there is knowledge but also, I think something has been lost in terms of empathizing with the world around you. Mm. Yeah, and objectifying and categorizing. There was a huge cultural shift when everything was supposed to be categorized and put into boxes and understood very clearly. They're, they're objects to be understood and not really empathized with, not really cared for. Really. Well, it is an artifice too, right? Like you, you can make categories, but it doesn't necessarily reflect... An empirical truth, which may or may not exist depending on your viewpoint of science, you know, positivism mm. or like more postmodern science, like your views on how knowledge is and, and all those kinds of stuff. But regardless of that, like, for instance, take trees, like for hundreds of years now, we, we thought we had like sort of the science of trees and we, we have known and fully understood it, like how they grow mm. and their biology, et cetera, photosynthesis, all that kind of stuff. But it turns out that there's so much we don't know because sort of the, the interplay with fungi yeah. and microorganisms in the ground mm. that form these neural networks almost in mm. the ground, for instance. This is pretty new science, like yeah. the last 10 years. And how like a forest communicates to its roots. Right. So we have viewed like a tree as a tree mm. and a tree as a tree. 
and it's one thing where in reality it's actually connected to the world around it in a way that's much more intricate and mm. complex than we previously thought. And I mean, all sciences is really just a way of replicating experiments and replicating data. And it's, you know, to the best of our ability. And when the data changes or we learn new things, we adapt it. Mm. So having this sort of monolithic view of nature and mm. the world around us is not very helpful and not very scientific even. Mm. I'm really interested in terms of language and how we define things. Returning a bit to Carol J. Adams' um, There's a lot of the things she writes are things that you kind of know, but they're not really explicitly talked about. So reading it has the experience of, oh shit, that's right. Why have I not connected those dots? For example, um, she talks a lot about marketing in terms of meat and in terms of the female body. And what you'll often have, not so much in Scandinavia, but you see a lot of these as other places like with uh, a pig and it's dressed in human clothes female clothes, like standing in a sexually alluring way with kind of the message, come and take me, I want to be eaten. And uh, it just has a lot of these really fucked up, weird connotations that just feel <laughs> yeah. wrong. And when you look at it through lens, something like feminism and yeah. like personhood, I mean, even if you take away like the clothes, because you don't have so much of that hair, but you still have a lot of, you have a place in Oslo called the happy pig in Gladegris, yeah. as if the pig is glad to be eaten by people. It's insane. Like, well, it makes well, I no assume sense. you could sort of chalk that up to, oh, they had a good life before they were slaughtered. That's <laughs> probably how you'd justify it, maybe. But, but I don't know. the symbolism what, of it, though. Yeah, yeah, it is fucked up. Actually, it's a bit better these days, it's sort of meat commercials and stuff. Mm. Back in the 50s and mm. even 30s and 20s, it was even worse. Then yeah. you saw a lot of personifying the pigs into being happy with being murdered and yeah. eaten. So you'd have like a pig cutting mm. itself open into like pork chops and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's fucking grotesque. Yeah. And often quite sexualized as well. And like use of those words in terms of like you talk about a sex worker or you talk about a woman who's perceived as promiscuous and you use these animal words as a way to derive. It just has a double symbolism that's Yeah, really... it's, it's so often linked, like yeah. the, the meat, mm. the idea of meat and mm. the idea of sex. And think about this. This is quite interesting. The way you divide up the body of an animal in like a chart of different, you have the thigh, you have the breast... You have all these different things. It really matches up with how women's bodies are categorized in porn, for example. It's very similar. Uh, well, I mean, couldn't you, couldn't you say that that's because uh, they're both mammals? Yeah, they're both mammals. That's yeah. quite right. But the symbolism is very closely integrated with... It's not necessarily symbolism. I mean, it yeah. could just be that because it's the same species. Well, it's a way of objectifying, objectifying the body. You're categorizing it into bits well, yeah, it that is. are not in themselves valuable, they're just things to be consumed or to derive pleasure out of. Yeah, well, it's objectifying, uh, right? And it's uh, taking sort of away personhood and replacing it with objecthood. Mm. It's uh, pretty fucked up <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Really. That's life. Well, it is for some very unfortunate. Yeah, the, but, uh, you know, nature is uncaring. It's well, uh, know, hell on earth. My point of view is that it's perfectly natural for something to die and to be eaten. That's how nature works. That's not problematic in itself. I mean, a life of torture and sexual abuse is problematic, but not like the act of eating meat itself. I don't really care about if people do that or not, but like the context it exists in and the way those animals live. And, you know, a lot of people, they just think, yeah, like in Norway, for example, yeah, well, our animals are safe and they're, they're treated well. But if you just think about like the amount of milk that's produced 
for every single day, the amount of milk. All of that milk comes from cows that have been forcibly impregnated. And what happens with the calves? If it's a milk calf, it gets crushed. They just destroy it. They kill it because they don't want ox. You know, that's their life. As soon as they are capable, they're forced into a life of being constantly pregnant, producing milk. And children are often killed. That goes for everywhere. And imagine that life. It's, it's terrible. It's amazing. But it's also a part of our relationship with nature and how mm. we deal with resources. Yeah. And how we deal with sort of, I guess, respecting the world around you in a way that's, again, this is sort of our relationship with the world around us has become so depersonified, so objectified that allow these things to exist, like these modern factory farms mm. where you sort of chuck the male chicks into a meat grinder as mm. soon as you have gendered yeah. them because they're valueless as a mm. product mm. and they're being used as pig fodder or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. the fuck. It's incredibly horrific, but at the same time, we have become so inured and numb to these ideas. And we don't really see these ideas either. We are not met with the images of those unless you're like reading uh, literature that's against it or whatever. Mm. Mm. Media that's against yeah, it. Yeah, we just get like a nice package with happy cows or whatever. Yeah, and there's so much secrecy mm. around these huge factory, uh, industrial factory meat grinders. I mean, these people, they know what they're doing is gruesome. It's not as if they don't know. They don't want Which is to why they don't allow, like, say, TV crews and stuff yeah. to film the, the process because yeah. it's, it's way too horrific. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I think a lot of this stuff isn't beyond, like, the imagination or understanding of people. It's not been explicitly communicated traditionally. But everyone knows. And you can often see the reaction of kids, you know, when they first, like, connect the dots a lot of them react in a way that says, oh shit, uh, I don't want to eat that, that's horrible. And then they're, they're kind of derided, they're called childish and stupid, and they're kind of, they're taught to, to undermine those feelings and that empathy goes away. And with it, I think like a general culture of empathizing with things that don't look like you. Like, I think it's, it's connected in a very direct way in terms of how we learn empathy and how we deal with, I mean, it's completely different from like, the idea of a traditional farm where, okay, you have animals there, you deal with them every day, you milk them. That's something completely different. Yeah, but again, it's you are more distant from it. Mm. By necessity, in the modern world, not everyone can live on a farm and no. have daily interactions with farm animals. But not that you're mentally incapable of understanding the suffering that mm. uh, animals go through, mm. but it's rather a sort of complacency and also your capacity of empathizing isn't infinite. I mean, if you were going to feel all the suffering in the world on a daily basis, you'd fucking off yourself because <laughs> yeah. there is so much suffering in the world and you can't really constantly take that in on a deeply personal and empathetic level. You just can't. You read about catastrophes all around the world, yeah. but you cannot empathize too much with it because it would break your heart, right? Yeah. And also there's something about dealing with guilt. I'm, I'm not so concerned about that, but I am concerned about like societal change. And there's a lot of change going on, uh, I feel like, slowly but surely, like a, a consciousness, an idea in our society that things need to be different. I mean, it goes very slow. And on a personal level, I don't think it's extremely likely for only but a few to make lifestyle changes. I mean, you can, but then you need like a social consensus that says you shouldn't. And as long as that's not there... I would say there has been huge changes, especially like around food and food industry and how we get our food. 
in the last like 10 years alone. And there's been a lot of literature about it. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of good books written about it and a lot of good chefs and cooks and uh, TV personalities and stuff. And I watch a lot of cooking shows, for instance. Yeah. I, I love cooking. And you, you really see it a lot more these days mm -hmm. than if you watch, say, like old cooking shows from the 90s or the 80s or even the 70s. Definitely. They are completely different in terms of what they recommend when mm. it comes to like where your food comes from, where it's grown. Like these days, it's almost like um, it's implied that you know already that your food shouldn't be coming from halfway around the globe. It should be local, right? That's a positive thing in yeah. today's food culture. Uh, wasn't that originally like a Danish thing, like New Nordic food or New Nordic, like a trend of I think this is a chef or restaurant that kind of pioneered the idea of local ecological food. Well, the Danes have been extremely like cutting edge on the front lines mm. of food techniques, food technology, and uh, the eating experience and like fine dining and stuff like mm. that, experimental dining, food chemistry, stuff like mm. that. Certainly very seminal in regards to changing food culture and how we look at food. Mm. Also it, in regards to like where you source your food, right? Absolutely. So I would say things are changing and they're definitely changing for the better. In the Western world, at least. I mean, to me, it's too slow, but it's, I'm sure. It's I'm, definitely <laughs> too slow. Or I'm glad to see like people's opinions starting to adjust, like having different ideas. A lot of the time, it's about opening your mind for different possibilities. Like, I would never buy milk these days, you know, but there's so many other types of milk, like Oatly, the Swedish brand of oat based milk, that's really good. And there's like a large selection of this stuff. And it's getting a lot of like notoriety. I think there's, they have one brand of oat milk that was apparently much better for coffee or something. And then that made it a bit more popular. So some popular like uh, coffee places would rather use this. Uh, and then kind of the word spreads a bit. Uh, yeah, but you see this type of thing, like with all the like almond milk and oat mm. milk and all these kinds of things, organic food, which is a huge subject and mm. prone to a lot of controversy. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> of course. And all the food science with like GMOs and stuff. Um, there's so much to talk about. Mm. And I'm sure there's a lot better podcasts dedicated to it. Yeah. But it's uh, fascinating. In my opinion, things are moving in the right direction. And huge change is happening, but it's happening slowly. Mm. But huge changes on these levels do happen slowly. Like you, you can't, you'd need a sort of food revolution, you know, and it's happening slowly. Yeah. Or an atomic world war or something like that. Yeah, food war. We sh we should have a like a, a huge global conflict of food. Yeah, that is probably happening anyway. Water shortage, resources. Yeah, Nestle and uh, saying water isn't a human right. Yeah, that's so disgusting. It's uh, living isn't a human right, basically. These fucking global multinational horrific food companies are the fucking scourge of the earth. Yeah, they, they literally are. Yeah. <laughs> And they treat their workers like shit. And it's just, yeah, it's so fucking, it's about time. Some change is happening. Yeah. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, just send an email to unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com and hope you're having a nice time despite our heavy conversation topics. Yeah. So until next time, stay fresh and stay local. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.